everyone, and welcome to our chemical executive conversation with Asul Arya, our senior vice president and chief energy strategist at IHS Markets. We're going to be talking today about energy transition and the pace towards it, and also the uh, key concepts that we all like to understand a little better. So welcome, Atul. Wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you, Lynn. Great to be here with you and uh, your colleagues. It's, uh, it's going to be really good. I know our chemical audience out there and others are really interested in this topic and the extent to which you can demystify some of the uh, terminologies and the goals and the different moving parts of this, that would be great. So um, I wanted to ask you how you see the pathway to tackling the, the challenge of climate change and CO2 emissions. And of course, this is particularly with the COP26 coming up um, upon us next week, starting next week in Glasgow. And what's, what is the most appropriate terminology when we talk about these concepts of decarbonisation, net zero, energy transition, circular economy and so on? Yeah, so let's let's break it down. A great question, Aline, and I hope you won't ask me any organic chemistry question, which was my weak subject. <laughs> okay, and nothing about uh, alkanes and alkynes, please. Uh, but uh, but just to come back to climate change, I think let's start with a very basic thing about climate change. I think if there's one message I would like to leave with your audience, that is ultimately all about emissions. You know, what really matters is that emissions have to come down. Emissions of uh, all the greenhouse gases, you know, led by CO2 and methane and other um, GHGs. And also one other important thing before we get into the terminology is that think of emissions, think of a bathtub, you know, and the planet is like a bathtub where, they, you know, we are emitting uh, greenhouse gases and they continue to accumulate. Even if you stop emitting, you know, the bathtub is not going to drain until you open the, you know, open the tap or the plug at the bottom. So we need to not only stop emitting, but we also need to then take things out. And we'll come back to sort of carbon removal uh, in a few minutes. So just to come just on your terminology question, the first thing uh, to, I want to talk about is, is this energy transition, which is kind of an umbrella term. And, and then in the simplest way to think about energy transition is, is transitioning of the global energy system, which is hydrocarbon based to a non-hydrocarbon based system. You know, we have lived with the system ever since uh, kind of, you know, going back to 200, 300 years back, you know, if you, wood is also a form of hydrocarbon. So, you know, from wood to coal to oil and gas and so on. So, so we want to transition that, you know, prior transitions have been more led by technology or functionality, you know, lower cost, higher functionality. Now, this transition is going to be different because it's led more by dealing with emissions, right? Externality, which doesn't mean that the, the technologies we have are lower cost with higher functionality. In some cases, they are higher cost with lower functionality. So that's, but the energy transition is kind of this umbrella of how we move from a one system to another driven by policy. I think decarbonization, uh, the phrase, I personally find it a bit challenging to use the word decarbon. You know, it's very, you know, we're going to get rid of it, but really it's not carbon we want to remove because if there is no carbon, you know, we will not be around. Uh, but it's really about, greenhouse gases, again, it's about CO2. So in a general term, decarbonization is really removing CO2 and, and methane, those are the two big greenhouse gases we deal with, sort of in the energy and petrochemicals industry, uh, you know, removing them, but there are others, as we know, uh, which are also other greenhouse gases, which are, which are also important. Uh, net zero, which is kind of like the, the 
phrase of the time today and leading up to COP, you know, everybody, every country is setting up our companies, new net zero target. Simply put net zero for a given entity. Let's take EU as an entity. EU is saying that by a time, a date certain, you know, 2045, 2050, the total emissions in EUs will be net zero. And the reason it's net and not gross is that there may be some emissions of greenhouse gases, but they will be offset by something else like, you know, uh, removal or really primarily through what's called nature-based solutions, simply planting trees. So the trees will, you know, compensate for any remaining greenhouse gas emissions. But really it's, it's the main focus is really reducing the emissions to as low as possible. And whatever is left has to be then removed with some, you know, other mechanisms. So that's kind of the net zero. So hopefully uh, the terminology, you know, is, is a bit clearer with, uh, with that explanation. Yes, I think um, it, it's it's great to get these things um, into into the relevant buckets, and um, that's um, that that is a very clear description. And I know the word decarbonisation always has strange connotations, and you're so right in that. I mean, certainly for the energy industry that we're in, and in plastics, um, we couldn't have a decarbonised world; it just wouldn't be there. But it's to do with the differentiation. Um, but focusing in on um, energy transition in terms of overall carbon management, which is another phrase that we hear, and um, we, we hear about technologies such as um, CCUS, you know, carbon capture and storage, about um, energy sequestration. Um, do you, um, do you, um, you know, how does this reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere, basically, in, yeah. in the blunt so, so question? I think the simplest way, I know I think about carbon is, is in, in sort of different buckets. So, you know, the first bucket is, which we all know very well, and I'm a petroleum engineer by training, and that, you know, if you can reduce your emissions in your operations, it, it's great because you're normally emissions mean your, your inefficiencies. And if you can reduce those inefficiencies, you know, you save money and also it's kind of, you know, good for all seasons because you're saving money as well as reducing emissions. So that's kind of operational emissions. And normally we talk about them also as a scope uh, one emissions. The, the second bucket is that, you know, we can sort of the, getting back to the decarbonization world is that rather than burning hydrocarbons, uh, could we use, a, you know, a, a renewable source uh, or, or non-hydrocarbon source like nuclear for energy, you know, solar, wind, uh, geothermal, hydro, nuclear, and so on. The third bucket, which we are talking about, is is it is a currently the most prevalent is that we are continuing to burn fossil fuels, which means that as as soon as you burn a fossil fuel or hydrocarbon, you're going to emit CO2 and in many cases methane or some other you know if it's not combusted properly. So that's where you have these emissions out in the atmosphere. So what can you do to capture them? Now you know this is the most ironic thing I found about climate lean is that you know think about it. The total concentration of uh, greenhouse gases, CO2, as one most important one, is around 400 parts per million, slightly over 400 now. But if you want to capture it, then you know it's too dilute. Whereas 400 parts per million or 450, as kind of the upper limit scientists say, is going to create a havoc in the in the you know on the planet. But it's too dilute to capture it and you know store it. But that's what the the te technologies uh, you're talking about. So really. I would focus on three very quickly. One is carbon capture, which is kind of well-established. And in the oil and gas industry, where I spent my career, you know, we would capture CO2 
at a high level of concentration and then stick it back into the reservoir and that added you know enhanced oil recovery um, and there are other now uses of co2 capture uh, but in in longer term we will need to really store it the amount of co2 we have to capture is so huge that not everything will be used for you know ER. the second uh, technology which is becoming kind of popular is direct air capture which is basically you're sucking air from the atmosphere processing it through some you know supposedly catalyst and then taking out co2 or car and and then uh, you know putting it back into into use or into the, into storage now that's a very energy intensive process think about it you're getting 400 parts per million of uh, CO2, and that requires a lot of energy. One idea which is being tested is could that energy source be renewable? You know, if the solar or wind become really cheap, then almost cost-free electricity to run your uh, run your uh, you know kind of the system. And but it, it still requires a lot of process technology, which many of your audience know well. You know, catalysts and other things. And the third kind of technology is, of course, not technology per se, but is, is you know nature-based solution, planting trees and all that. Just very quickly on the CCS, Lynn, you know, we have been working as an industry on CCS for a long time, but still have very little carbon captured, around 40 million tons per year, which is like a, you know, nothing when a drop in the ocean. So we need to get to like a gigaton, you know, billion tons say by 2030 or larger. That's a 25 times where we are today. And that's where I think the industry has a lot to offer. The, by industry, I hear, I mean, energy as well as the petrochemical industry. And just on, on that point then, what are the limiting factors as it were? I mean, is it the sheer um, space available for storage um, or is it the scope of the technologies? There, there are several things, so, you know, I will highlight maybe three for you, uh, your audience, Lynn. One is that, uh, you know, uh, the cost of capture still remains quite high, okay, because you're doing, you know, as you're using catalyst, it's, it's sort of, there are different technologies for pre-combustion, post-combustion, and so on. I'm sure your audience will know that, but that cost of capture remains high. Then the other issue is that once you have captured CO2, let's say you get that cost down, then you have to, to your point, you know, store it. So the location you're capturing, it may not be close enough to where you can store it, right? If you are in the middle of populated area, that's not going to happen, right? So then you have to move it. So there is a transport involved, building CO2 pipelines or some infrastructure, and then you have to have the storage. Most kind of the, the biggest opportunity right now in the current, say less than the next decade by 2038, nine years, is going to be storage in offshore depleted oil and gas fields, you know, because we know them, we've characterized them well, we know the quality of the seal, so you capture it. So, it, but inherently, there's this new concept called the hops, where and you know the good yeah. news is, as you know, in your business, the, a lot of the industrial operations are on on the shore because of ease of logistics, right? So if you can do like take Houston in the U.S. or North Sea, you know, you know Scotland uh, close to where you are, uh, or or uh, Netherlands, you know, you could uh, the Rotterdam would be another area where you can capture a lot of CO2, ship it offshore and store it. So I think that's a very promising, uh, you know, possibility, a business model possibility. Uh, down the road, I think we will need onshore storage location, and there will be some happening even as we speak now, but offshore is more likely. You know, the other issue is if there's any problem with the storage, if it's offshore, the risks are a lot lower, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we are seeing uh, we are seeing developments towards that absolutely in the in the petrochemical sector. Um, for example, in Canada, uh, Dow Chemical just made a, uh, a major announcement, which I think is is basically located around um, this type of um, opportunity. So, yeah. um, w- within I mean, so within these um, you know within the scope of of what we've been talking about, what what do you think at all would be the most um, important or significant efforts? in carbon management to mitigate climate change and control the rise in world temperature according to the 2030 goals. I'm saying 2030 because there's other goals out there. But what, yeah. what, what are going to be the most important efforts? And um, let's link that perhaps to what we might expect from COP26 or what you would hope for. So um, uh, two, I'll answer it in two parts. So one is that in terms of the efforts and technologies, you know, the, the way I think about this, the framework I have is I use it the sectoral approach. I think that's a that's kind of the way to think because different sectors will need different technologies. And for in the interest of time, I will focus on three sectors, which are the three largest kind of you know contributors to emissions: transportation, uh, power generation, and kind of industrial activity, which you know many of our audience are involved in, you know, including fertilizers, chemicals, refining, steel, cement, and all that. So let me start with the easiest one, which is electricity, where the world as a whole and OECD in particular, US and Europe have made the biggest leap is that to take uh, particularly coal out of electricity and replace it either with natural gas or renewables. And and that is going very well. You know, that's, and I think we are very optimistic. uh, And I think that will be the in-COP connection the big thing is, can we do the same thing in the in the developing world, you know, in non-OECD, and give them enough money to leapfrog in a way straight to renewable power, you know, solar and wind in particular. So that's that's kind of you know we can bank on that, and I think that's going to be the one issue out there is the supply chains because most of the you know the hardware is coming from China, and that's kind of involved, you know, linked to the geopolitical issues. So let's not touch on that for now. The second sector is transportation. And the transportation sector is difficult because the emissions are highly distributed, right? Every car has CO2 coming out of it. Uh, and how do you capture all that? So, of course, the most common technology right now is EVs and, you know, using battery technology to create EVs, particularly for the light-duty vehicle. For heavier-duty transportation, both road and ship and air, I think the new wonder fuel is potentially hydrogen or maybe e-fuels or biofuel, you know, which... Uh, could be possible, uh, but the batteries are kind of right now in the leading, and and I think it there. By the way, the, the the chemical industry, the petrochemical industry, will have a massive amount to contribute uh, in that because you know it's ultimately then a lot of chemistry involved, and, and a lot of materials will be involved. Uh, many of the EV components will be made from plastics, so so you know that's a growth opportunity for that. So that's the second area. Good news on some fronts, but not so good so far on the other parts of transportation. The third one is the industrial, which you know we know well from our experience. There, reducing emission is very difficult because there you need heat, not electricity. And heat, you know, electricity, not, uh, electricity is not a good source of heat, right? Electricity is good for lights and you know mobility, perhaps. So we will need natural gas much more there. So how do we decarbonize that? And hydrogen may be the answer. To that for some of those industries, uh, but maybe not for all. You know, uh, so that's kind of where where the world is. I think next week uh, the one big issue 
for next two weeks is going to be money. Because, you know, back in Paris, there was a commitment made by the OECD countries that they will provide $100 billion per year to the developing world for deployment of technologies and all that. But that hasn't happened. I think by latest estimate, we're still in the 60 billion or so. And now the, what we're going to hear next week is that 100 billion should be the floor and not the ceiling, meaning the top, the amount of money needed is a lot higher. So how do we raise that number to you know, three, four, five, ten 10 times? IE actually said it needs to be at least a trillion dollars uh, per year by 2030, going into the developing and emerging economies by 2030. So, so that's kind of where I think we are going to be. Yeah, for, well, yes, I, I think um, clearly you're asking them to be ambitious then, which is probably what is, is absolutely needed in terms of financing as well as everything else. Um, yeah. So it, it, homing in on the energy and chemical companies then, um, and you just referenced the opportunity for chemicals, I think, in the contribution of plastics to light weighting. Uh, we know they play a role in insulation, you know, chemical products. But, um, you know, could you maybe taking the energy sector first, what are really the key challenges and opportunity for the energy companies? Yeah, so energy companies, you know, kind of are really in the spotlight, as we all know, right? Because energy is the single largest country. Use of energy or hydrocarbons is the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, but I think it's sort of slightly a bit narrow-minded because focusing on, let's say, the big uh, international oil and gas companies is, you know, they are a very small contributor to the emissions. So we need to think about it holistically. I, I think I, we we're going to see kind of two at least two clear models, maybe there are more, but two clear ones we are already seeing, that the European big, big companies, the IOCs, are, are focusing on diversifying into, you know, electricity or trans, you know, EVs and other things like that, you know, outside of the core, let's say, oil and gas business uh, to do that. They are also working in carbon capture and hydrogen, but they have a much diversified portfolio. I think the U.S. companies are primarily focusing on, you know, staying close to the knitting, as we say, and and doing things like biofuels, which is in a, in a way, and you know, if you are in a refining business, as you know well, then you know biofuels, you you know kind of how to do process, you know, uh, you know, so you can yeah. you can perhaps do that. And, and there are some very exciting technologies out there in biofuel technologies. You know, biofuels I think kind of became stagnant in terms of technology development over the last decade, but it seems to me that the, this decade is going to be a big growth in biofuels. Uh, and of course, there's hydrogen. And then there is the carbon capture. So for energy companies, and I think this also applies to, to the uh, petrochemical companies, you know, the one thing the big companies are really good at is doing big stuff, right? Big projects which are complex, putting steel in the ground. And I think that's where, like the idea of the Houston hub, uh, which has been put forth by many companies, is great because they can bring various players together. You know, they know how to deal with that complexity. Uh, you know, public, private, you know, money, execution. So I think that will be an opportunity. On the on the chemical side, the one thing we should definitely touch on is plastics. You refer to it. So you know, I think on plastics, sort of the good news and the bad news, right? The good news is that our plastics kind of, uh, after being bad mouth for a while, got good name in the COVID and, you know, unfortunately during COVID, but, but it, is, it is important for people to understand the value of, of plastics. I think the industry, and I know, is working on dealing with the waste issue 
which is I think is is really important, isn't it? Because it, the pollution is uh, is huge, uh, and uh, that needs to be dealt with. But there is huge opportunity uh, across the board. And also remember that you know I feel that the energy transition, the path to energy transition has to go through sort of engineering technology processing, it's not going to be all solar and wind. You know, that's one message I want to leave with your audiences. So so the engineer, the geoscientist, just carbon capture. We're going to need to characterize hundreds of reservoirs, right? We need geosciences, geotechnical expertise to do that. So people say, you know, the hydrocarbon industry is sort of part of the problem. I would strongly push back and say this industry is part of the solution. We will without us this industry, there has been no solution to. It. We couldn't get. We can't get to net zero. I think it's, it's you know, and, and industry is engaging uh, very heavily. Yeah, that absolutely. I mean, we are seeing major investments on the chemical side in in these um, things that you've talked about. Not least um, the concept of the e crackers um, by the major chemical companies um, to um, shift the, um, you know, to try and decarbonize the power intake. And so on. So, um, do you, do you have so any views using, on? Uh, sorry, that would be using like a renewable and electricity. Is that what it is? Correct. Yeah, yeah, green power, etc. And again, this is all made possible, you know, around the hubs that are developing, and so on. So, I um, uh, absolutely the the chemical industry, I think, is is tackling the um, the CO two the emissions side and and its heat usage and so on. But also, you raised um, absolutely correctly the image the image issue which has been long yeah. long standing over plastics plastics waste not good for the, for the yeah industry. you see all the stuff in the ocean floating around right so by the way one other thing you just reminded me i should mention to our audience is you know the thing uh, which has changed in the last 30 years the time i've been in industries the the prevalence and the low cost of uh, you know digital technologies right you know, when I started my career, doing anything digital was like super expensive uh, in, in not just computers and all that, but actually doing it in the field. Now it is so, so cheap that we can do a lot more measurement. We can do a lot more analysis very quickly with very low cost. And I think that's another thing where, you know, the, this our industry is the leading edge of application of digital expertise. And uh, I think it's tremendous. Uh, opportunity to continue to become more efficient uh, and measure things, monitor things, deal with them. Uh, and I think it goes back to, you know, the, the issues around waste or around just operational efficiency, as, as you're saying in, in the you know, yeah. e-cracker, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned hydrogen a couple of times, and I, yeah. I think everybody's still grappling with this concept. But <laughs> I mean, would you say there's a disproportionate focus on hydrogen or is it about rice or it needs more focus? So, you know, in my, I mean, uh, those of us who've been around here for a while may remember that there was going to be a bridge to the 21st century built by hydrogen back in the 90s. I think it was Bill Clinton or maybe George W. Bush and in, his, in their presidencies. Uh, but I, I think there is more enthusiasm. I, I would say that generally... As a technologist, you know, we are guilty of being very optimistic in the short term and we say, oh, it's going to happen in the next two years. And, you know, and I think that I would be a bit cautious on that. But I think the reason there is optimism, Lynn, is that, you know, is the, is the cost of renewables has come down so much. And I used to run a solar business. I did that for a few years. 
And at that time, I would never have imagined that the cost of a solar panel would be down to where it is now. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, so if you have very cheap or almost zero cost, let's say, solar uh, power, which you can then use to electrolyze water and make hydrogen, and uh, you know, it's not going to be overall zero cost. You need the electrolyzers. You need everything else. But that's the kind of the you know the end game, and uh, so everybody is jumping jumping on it, which I think is kind of good in the sense that there will be more innovation. You know, with multiple companies, there is competition and innovation. So I think that would be good. Uh, but I would be somewhat cautious on the optimism of it. I should mention also the blue hydrogen, which is another you know area. But the blue hydrogen goes back to my comments about CCS because blue is really using. Uh, some source of, you know, some hydrocarbons, so let's say methane, and then uh, capturing the CO2 from it. But then the, all the issues we discussed about CCS come back in, into four. So some co some companies and countries are going straight to green. Uh, I was in India last week, where I was in India Energy Forum, and India has a big focus now on, they've created a national hydrogen mission, and they want to be a global leader in green hydrogen, logic being so much you know, sunshine, if you've been in India, right, you know, it's always 90 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> no matter the time of the year or higher. So so could we use that uh, sunshine to make green hydrogen and then convert that into, uh, yeah, use the sunshine, make green hydrogen and use that for many uses, including including transportation, by the way. So so that could be, but I think I think it's really going to be a, a decade-long journey. I, I don't see hundreds of green hydrogen plants coming up in the, in the next two to three years because the cost cost of green hydrogen is very high, four, five, six times of the hydrogen we are currently producing, you know, the gray hydrogen. So. Yeah, absolutely. But, but very quick um, comment also, uh, Lynn, you know, the chemical industry is the largest producer of, uh, refining and petrochemical industry is the largest producer of hydrogen, so they have a clearly a leg up in this and uh, they yeah. take a big lead. Right? I mean, what, right? what do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we are seeing a lot of announcements in the arena from the chemical industry on hydrogen, especially from, of course, the gases companies, the big, you know, the big gas, uh, the big gas producers and um, very ambitious um, network opportunities in, in Middle East and places. So, um, yes, we are we are seeing a lot and it's difficult, um, you know, it's difficult to get a perspective. And I think it, it, it's really good to to hear your views on this and also, you know, the, where this may work, where it may not work. I mean, hydrogen vehicles, hydrogen power vehicles, we're seeing this in the, you know, large heavy vehicle sector. We hear from our uh, colleagues in automotive, but maybe a little bit more challenging for the light vehicle, for the everyday passenger sectors. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I this is where we need, you know, we need some more input to help us think this along the road. Well, you know, one one idea, which I mean, two things I'll mention briefly. In India, we heard last week that in India they are mixing hydrogen with CNG for public buses in Delhi, and they yeah. have like a depot where they actually make hydrogen on you know uh, on location and then blend it. I think up to fifteen percent with CNG, and it really improves the air quality. You know, CNG is clear cleaner than diesel, but still not. 100% clean, right? So, so they're doing that. So that could be an opportunity where, as you're saying, you know, you take the heavier transport, which can be uh, refueled in kind of fixed locations, like in a depot or on highways. So I think, and, and same will be true for, say, heavy-duty transport, like you know, the trucks we see in the U.S. and and Europe. Uh, I, 
I really struggle to see batteries in any kind of heavy duty transport because the weight of batteries is so huge and the discharge power density is not that high. So could we, you know, I think that's going to be the challenge for, for so we need something else and, and biofuels could be another area or e-fuels, but, but uh, hydrogen clearly has a big opportunity there. And I know uh, here in London, not to dwell on this for too long, but here in London, the mayor of London has an initiative for a fleet of hydrogen buses here. Yeah. And I know at COP next week in Glasgow, there's going to be a, a cities dialogue between you know many of the major cities. And so I'm sure that everybody's trying to share their thoughts and experience and views on this. Yeah, um, yeah I think it will be, be interesting. Uh, to see what what I think. The, by the way, the cities actually it's another interesting point you make. The cities are the if you take the world's cities, they consume I think like two thirds of the energy is consumed in cities, and it's growing because you know urbanization is growing. So that could be a great way for us to kind of go to the future world of lower emissions because uh, cities absolutely. can do a lot. Right? Yes, uh, they can absolutely do a lot. So just getting back to India, you referenced um, the India Energy Forum, and I know it was a great success and a, a really important you know, collaboration place for the Indian government and um, all, all of you and the experts in industry. So um, what would you say was the overall um, sentiment from uh, the Indian energy scene, as it were, and expectations um, towards success at COP26? Because India is such an important player in this regard? Yeah, you know, India is the fourth largest uh, emitter, so clearly very important. I think there were two messages we heard, two important messages. One is that India is right now dealing with very high oil prices and very high gas prices. And, and you know, the concern is that if the transition is uh, disorderly, then the, the prices will be very, not only high, but volatile. And a country like India can't afford that volatility. So. Uh, and we had several very senior people, including uh, OPEC Secretary General uh, Mohammed Barkindo, you know, talk about this, how to balance that uh, volatility. So short term and, and, the, and the plea that any transition needs to be orderly. I think so that was the one message. The second message was that India is still a growing economy. You know, per capita energy consumption is way below the global averages. So there, there needs to be more space in the carbon budget for India uh, than many other countries, including China, actually, because China has consumed a lot and, you know, it's still growing, but uh, has more, uh, much more economic development and higher GDP per capita. So we plea for more space. You know, they want to rapidly transform, very optimistic about renewables, very optimistic about hydrogen. Uh, I would say I'm, you know, somewhat pessimistic about uh, removing oil from their economy because oil is such a fundamental part of transportation. That's why they want to go to biofuels as an example, so which could be produced uh, domestically. Oh, and the last thing I would say is that uh, the very strong message that uh, the India needs that money, which was promised a long time back. And so show me the money. I think that's going to be a big question next week when Prime Minister right. Modi is in COP um, meeting. We had the top Indian, uh, kind of the, the head of the Indian Planning Commission, Dr. Rajiv Kumar, and he made very important remarks about how we, India needs to look forward and the world needs to look forward. But given the role of India as a largest democracy and a growing, you know, fast-growing economy, it, it needs a bigger voice and a seat at the table. 
and will help bring along a lot of other countries that will listen to India more than to say, you know, say US or EU. So. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where we get back to our trillion dollars, right? As opposed yes, to- Yes, exactly, yeah. 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 So, uh, uh, the, yeah. The trillion dollar or higher, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the other um, huge player, of course, in this is uh, China. And earlier in the week, we saw um, China unveil a new plan to reach peak emissions by the end of the decade. So how important, Atul, in your view, is this announcement and um, their ambition for the net zero by 2060? I mean, can you put all of that into context for us? Yeah, so I think China, you know, they came out with their target last year, actually last year in September, which was somewhat of a surprise to many. Uh, uh, and uh, this, you know, the, now the focus has been more recently is when will China's emissions peak? And in the announcement, they said within this decade, it was left a bit, uh, you know, vague, which is intentional because, uh, you know, it's not certain they can guarantee a date. I actually, I am more optimistic, I think, than perhaps many people on China in the sense that, you know, China is driven by local needs. And the number one reason for China to transition has been local air quality and the pollution. You know, if you go to Beijing or Shanghai, you see that, right? You can hardly breathe. Uh, most, you know, now, of course, we're using masks every day. But the most striking thing I noticed when I went to China 20 years back was a mask in your, in your hotel wardrobe because you needed that. So I think they are driven by that. They're driven by kind of you know, in a, in a political system they have, just transition is very important for a billion people, right? Everybody needs to grow. So uh, I think, uh, and China has done more on renewable, deploying renewable uh, power than any other country in the world, leading on the EV side. So, so I think, and, and there'll be a lot more kind of hydrogen, CCS, they will work on all, all of the technologies. I think the real issue will be uh, for the next couple of weeks in COP is what is the stance they want to take vis-a-vis uh, -vis climate versus all the other geopolitical issues, you know, which uh, China and the U.S. and EU are dealing with. I, I think they will they will be more constructive on climate because uh, in a way it's a win-win, right, for everybody. And it's not in their interest to be confrontational on this very important uh, topic. And, and let's not forget, given that they control so much of the supply chains, uh, you know, if there is a lot of uh, uh, barriers put on that, it will economically hurt China. So from that perspective also, uh, I think they will play they will play a constructive role. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. I mean, they're, they're the largest emitter. So, you know, no matter how much US and EU do, uh, you know, it all can be wiped out by a single move of China, plus or minus, right? Yes, and I've heard you on your interesting climate um, series, Atul, I've heard you have interesting conversations with um, China experts um, on, you know, um, steps that are underway, you know, the, the notion of the dual economy stopping and starting the industrial plants, for example, which is actually yeah. causing... Um, some, you know, some issues for some of uh, our possibly listeners out there, but certainly clients for industry, you have to turn your plants off, you turn it back on again, according to the power availability. So I suppose, uh, do you see that as a, a sign that, um, you know, China is getting to grips and tackling the um, yeah, I think pollution are, uh, question? This, yeah, part of the transition, you know, 
one of the things, uh, as we know, China is that uh, the provincial government is very strong in China, right? They and the central government is putting pressure on the provincial government to start to sort of clean up their act in terms of environment, and, and that's where you know they they went big ways on gas, and our gas team has. Uh, determined that the, the gas demand in China went up by like 30% pre-pandemic to this year. I mean, that's a massive increase. And, you know, they bought a lot of LNG and, and so on. So that's the gas prices have gone up. But it's driven by really more about, uh, you know, cleaning up. So I think I think that's kind of the dual. You know, they also just started a carbon market in July. So I think we're going to yeah. see a lot of this experimentation in, in China and, you know, uh, all all options are on the table is what I would put, uh, say, and they will. Uh, you know, one thing we know, uh, uh, learning from last twenty plus years, is that if, if if the government decides to do something, they put real effort into making it possible. Sometimes by doing things, you know, which may not be what we would do in the West, but still they do it. So uh, I think uh, I think that's gonna, what is going to happen. And this this blip we are seeing right now is a is one of those transitional challenges but i think they will figure it out i think they were going to make sure that it's more stable change and not just rapid you know overnight change from say coal to gas which of course creates problems and you know companies uh, our, our clients have to shut down their operations isn't it because they can't get the the fuel or feedstock yeah, absolutely. So, I, yeah, I was going to mention the um, the carbon markets as well, because I suppose, you know, these things are going to be bumpy at the beginning and, yeah. you know, they may not give us a, a perfect reference on price and so on. But I would imagine um, it, it's a good signal and we're going to need across the world, the different region, um, some sort of leadership on creating these um, schemes, you know, the, the carbon management systems and so on. So um, how important in that whole um that whole picture of, of trading systems will china be and will will how to what extent will um global companies engage with that do you think yeah so the, you know china's carbon market right now is domestic it's provincial and it's only covering the power sector they are going to expand that and if you are operating in china any of our listeners you would have to be part of the system because they will put certain targets and controls and prices. So uh, I think that would be important. And, and more group, more broadly, I think the other big issue out there, Lynn, is the price, you know, because in Europe where you are, uh, the EU is talking about this border carbon uh, tax, you know, so if there yeah. is steel coming from China, actually, by the way, this is a, a real concern in India as well, because India and China are exporting a lot of heavy manufactured goods so you know those goods will have to be subject to could be subject to uh, border tax adjustment. So I think that's going to be another motivation. Uh, you know China's ROC uh, exports drop. Uh, you know because of that. So uh, I think there will be first there will be re, you know having like one single global carbon market. I, I think is quite far away. I mean with so many trade issues, it's going to be very complex and difficult. But if major uh, emitters could create their own domestic markets and make them. Yeah, look, think about it. The U.S. doesn't have a national carbon market today. I mean, that would be one big thing in the U.S. Uh, so th those are the first steps before we think about a global uh, global market. Sure. 
Okay, well, Atul, it's been um, a fascinating conversation and thank you so much. Um, are there any final words that you'd like to give us uh, that we've not really gone over? I, I would say two things. One is that, you know, the, the, the headline the title of our conversation, going fast, going slow. If you just read the news stories, you feel like, oh, wow, it's you know, everything is in transition. I, I would caution our audience, and that's why I say going slow is a question mark. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So think about that in, in that way. And the last thing I would say is that, you know, in the last, if you think about the fossil fuels, hydrocarbons as a part of the primary energy mix, it, it has changed from 83% in 1990 to 80% in 2020. So in 30 years, 3% dropped. Now we're trying to get from that 80% to near zero in the next 30 years. Uh, as an engineer, I think that's kind of uh, quite unlikely. So the real question is how close to that we can come without creating massive disruptions uh, in the lives of, of people. Uh, but then that's both a challenge and an exciting thing for us, uh, you know, uh, energy and chemicals uh, companies and professionals. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the um, just the things that we were referencing earlier about the investments um, from the chemical and energy companies in this arena, if I look back from a year ago or two years ago, you know, this subject was very small on the agenda. Now we're seeing billions and billions of dollars and multiple investments going in. So hopefully that's an indicator that we might pick up speed very quickly. But uh, yes. yes, it's all going to be about um, being ambitious, moving it along, and let's see what happens at COP. And then I look forward to maybe revisiting our conversation at some point down the road. Yes, so, thank, thank you, Lynn. You. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you to your and our audience uh, for uh, listening to this conversation. Yes, thank you so much again, Atalaria. It's a real pleasure to have had you here and you're our, our chief uh, energy strategist in all of this. And so we do look to you for the words of wisdom. And once again, we really appreciate you spending the time with us today. My thank pleasure. you and goodbye, thank everyone. You.